Hi, I'm the Contract Tutor, and welcome back to Basic Contract Law for Students. This episode begins our discussion of vitiating elements. But before we begin, I want to take a brief moment to talk about study habits. If you're happy with your current scores, then that's great. Keep doing what you're doing. If you are unhappy with your scores, then perhaps it's time to change up your study habits. You may decide to try flashcards, creating outlines, or studying with a group, or maybe even without one. But remember to ask for help. Your tutors and professors are here to help clarify the material, and we want you to succeed. Also, something that I had to do when I came to law school was redefine success. In undergrad, many of us got A's and B's, perhaps without even putting in a lot of study hours. But let me tell you a story. Math has never been my strongest subject. I had a college math class a few years ago that I was not doing very well in. I kept getting D's on my exams, and that was just really frustrating because I felt like no matter how hard I studied, I couldn't bring my scores up. So one week, my friends and I spent nine hours at our university's tutoring center, and on the next test, I got 100%. I was so proud of myself, and I could tell that my professor was really proud of me too. And at the end of the semester, I expected a C in that class. And even though I was an A student, I knew that I was going to be proud of the C because I worked hard for it. But when those grades came out, I saw that I got a B. And although that was a wonderful feeling, I knew that I would be proud of my grade no matter what because I had put a lot of effort into it. I tell you this story for a few reasons. First, my grade changed when I decided to ask for help. That experience taught me that asking for help is not embarrassing. It's actually empowering to know when I need help and that I am not afraid to ask for it. Second, it was not too late for me. It was not too late for me to change my study habits and pull a higher grade out of that class, whether that grade was going to be a C or a B. Lastly, I tell you this story because that experience helped me redefine the word success. Once my definition changed, I was much happier. Anyway, that's my two cents on defining success. So let's talk about contracts. Vitiating a contract means you're making it unenforceable. Thus, vitiating elements make a contract voidable. These elements are fraud, duress, unconscionability, undue influence, misrepresentation, mistake, incompetency, and minority, like an age minority. So these are the things we're going to be talking about for the next few episodes. So before we jump into all of these vitiating elements, we need to understand the difference between void and voidable. So if something is a void, V as in Victor, O-I-D, void is a legal nullity. So there's not a contract at all. This is the effect of misrepresenting the essence of a contract. Now, voidable means that one party may choose to avoid the contract. Also something that we need to briefly discuss is fraud in the factum versus fraudulent inducement. So fraud in the factum makes a contract void, right? A legal nullity. The essence of the contract was misrepresented. So fraud in the factum must be in the absence of negligence. So the person seeking to void the contract cannot have been negligent. 
This is because if you know or have reason to know that the contract wasn't what the other person was representing, then why did you even sign it? So for example, A gets B's autograph, but it's actually a contract to sell B's car. A sells B's car to C. Because there was no contract between A and B, no title passed, B can go get his car from C. The contract is void, so there's no contract. Now, fraudulent inducement makes a contract voidable. Okay, so fraud in the factum makes a contract void, and fraudulent inducement makes a contract voidable. Next, let's go into misrepresentation. Misrepresentation makes a contract voidable, and the remedy is rescission. There's three elements of misrepresentation. First, it can be fraudulent or material. Second, there's inducement. Third, justifiable reliance. It also needs to be a misrepresentation of fact. So in our elements, I said it was fraudulent or material, right? So when is it fraudulent? Well, it's fraudulent if the maker intends his assertion to induce a party to manifest his assent and the maker, one, knows or believes that the assertion is not in accord with the facts, or two, doesn't have the confidence that he states or implies in the truth of the assertion, or three, knows that he does not have the basis that he states or implies in the assertion. A lot of words, right? Let's break it down. So this is how I broke it down to help me understand it a little better. So one, knows or believes that the assertion is not in accord with the facts. So they're lying. That's the first one. You're probably going to see that one the most. Two, doesn't have the confidence that he states or implies in the truth of the assertion. So he just doesn't have confidence in what he's saying. Or three, knows that he does not have the basis that he states or implies in the assertion. The way I understand that is he didn't do his research. So putting all this together, misrepresentation is fraudulent if the maker intends his assertion to induce a party to manifest his assent and the maker is lying, doesn't have confidence in what he's saying, or didn't do his research. So when is it material? Misrepresentation is material if it would likely induce a reasonable person to manifest his assent or if the maker knows that it would be likely to induce the recipient to do so. So that's basically a subjective standard versus an objective standard, right? So the subjective standard would be is material if he knows it's likely to induce the recipient. I know that you are probably going to be induced by this. So that's a subjective standard. And then the objective standard is the misrepresentation is material if a reasonable person would manifest his assent to it, right? Because reasonable, we always are going to associate with the objective standard. So material can be subjective or objective standard. There's also third-party misrepresentation. A misrepresentation by a third party makes a contract voidable, right? Because misrepresentation is associated with being voidable. Unless the other party in good faith and without reason to know of the misrepresentation either gives value or materially relies on the contract. So basically, 
a misrepresentation by a third party is going to be voidable unless the other party is a bona fide purchaser. And you'll learn more about that in your property class. You'll probably see this with real estate contracts. But this is the same with duress and undue influence. Next, we have unconscionability. This is another vitiating element. Unconscionability basically means that it's so unfair that it shocks the conscience of the court. This is pretty rare. It's really hard to shock the conscience of the court. This theory is meant to protect against or prevent oppression and unfair surprise. So there's two aspects to unconscionability. First, there's procedural and then there's substantive. Remember how we talked about procedural and substantive terms? Well, we have procedural and substantive aspects of unconscionability as well. So the procedural is how the contract was formed. For example, Brian is in high school and expected to play professional basketball in the future. Jane hears of Brian and catches up to him at a coffee shop. Jane tells Brian that she wants to be his manager and presents a contract for him to sign. When Brian asks to have time to look over the contract and have his mom look over it with him, Jane tells him that he has to sign the contract right now or the deal is off. Jane refuses to allow Brian to talk it over with his mom. Now our substantive aspect is what terms are in the contract. So if we use the same facts that we just talked about, and then in the contract, there's a clause saying that Jane gets 50% of whatever Brian makes. Other basketball players' managers usually only make 15%, though, in this situation. So there was a case like this where a court held that this was unconscionable because of the procedural and substantive issues with it. So now the court has some options. First, avoid the contract. Second, limit the unfair part so it won't be unfair. Or third, don't enforce the unfair part. So this last one is often chosen by parties in the contract, which contains a severability clause saying, quote, if any part of this contract is found to be unconscionable to a court of law, then the remedy is to not enforce the clauses or provisions that said court of law finds to be unconscionable. Close quote. Something like that. You may or may not see a severability clause in a practice question, but you probably will see one in practice. Now, like I said at the beginning of the episode, this is the first of several episodes where we're going to be discussing vitiating elements. So the best way for you to know if there is a vitiating element present in the question is to go through the elements of each vitiating topic that you think could apply. So for example, we just talked about misrepresentation. It has three elements. In future episodes, you'll learn that duress has a couple elements and mutual mistake has four elements. If you think that it's testing misrepresentation, ask yourself whether it's fraudulent or material. And if there was inducement, whether there was justifiable reliance, you know, go through those elements. All right, quick summary of everything we discussed this episode. Vitiating a contract means that you're making it unenforceable. We talked about void versus voidable, fraud in the factum versus fraudulent inducement, and then we talked about misrepresentation, which makes a contract voidable and the remedy is rescission. The elements for misrepresentation are fraudulent or material, inducement, and justifiable reliance. We also talked about when it's material and when it's fraudulent. 
and we briefly talked about third-party misrepresentation. We also covered unconscionability, which means that it's so unfair that it shocks the conscience of the court. And there's two aspects, procedural and substantive. The court has three options. It can avoid the contract, limit the unfair part so it won't be unfair, or don't enforce the unfair part. I'm the Contract Tutor, and thank you for listening to Basic Contract Law for Students.